Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. This is episode five. Clinical Athlete is a network of healthcare providers who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest provider at clinicalathlete.com. And don't forget about the Clinical Athlete Forum, where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, and share ideas and resources related to sports med, rehab, and performance. To join the forum or be listed on the Clinical Athlete directory, details and applications can be found at clinicalathlete.com. This podcast can be found on the Clinical Athlete website, YouTube, and iTunes. And specifically specifically for iTunes, uh, leave us a review if the show is helpful for you. We always appreciate that. My name is Quinn Hennick, and I am a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California. And I'm joined by Michael Ray, a doctor of chiropractic in Harrisonburg, Virginia. What's up, Mike? How's it going, Quinn? It's going well, man. Uh... How's Harrisonburg treating you? Cold. Starting to actually turn into a little bit of fall. You have seasons there. We do. Weird. I got away from that. I got the hell out of season land. It's just like summer all the time for you guys, I think. Yeah, you kind of get tired of it. Not. I'm also joined by Derek Miles, a doctor of PT in the San Francisco Bay Area. What's up, Derek? Good morning, Glenn. Good morning. Uh... Okay, upcoming clinical athlete events. Real quick rundown here. We've got two clinical athlete weightlifting certification courses coming up. One in Sherwood, Oregon, which is like southwest or like west of Portland. i to get my geography right. That's on November 4th. Lacrosse, Wisconsin on November 18th. And then two upcoming scientific principles of sports rehab seminars, which Michael and Derek lead. And uh, the first one is in November, November 18th, and that is in Seattle, Washington, and December 9th in Milpitas, California, which is next to San Jose, kind of that South Bay area. So today, we are going to talk about youth athletic development, and in particular, we're going to talk about early sports specialization. So we've got three articles that we're going to run down and I'm just going to list those articles real quick and then we'll start jumping in and discussing the first one. They're all uh, kind of research review articles. So you get a few smart people and you talk about a certain subject. So they're not necessarily studies, more of just like kind of uh, discussing concepts here. Uh, So the first one is titled, when is it too early for single sport specialization? And the lead author on that is Brian Feely. The second article is titled Sports Specialization Part 1. Does early sports specialization increase negative outcomes and reduce the opportunity for success in young athletes? And that's Gregory Meyer is the lead author on that. And then Part 2 of that, Sports Specialization... I can't speak. Use your words, Quinn. Sports Specialization Part 2. Alternative... It's early, Mike. Don't laugh at me. Alternative Solutions to early sports specialization in youth athletes. And so part one was kind of, uh, you know, highlighting the, the issues. And then part two is, is potentially, you know, discussing uh, solutions. But we'll jump into this feely argument. When is it too early for single sport specialization? And so the purpose of this review, as stated by the authors, is to summarize the evidence regarding early sports specialization and the risk for youth injury in a sport-specific spe- sport manner and to suggest areas where further research is needed to best assess the effects of single sport specialization. So they actually 
jump into a lot of stuff here, and there's some great stats. They just right off the bat. Uh, 27 million youths, U.S. youths between the age of 6 and 18 participate in team sports and 60 million participate in some form of organized athletics. And so, it's, I mean, I guess that's a good thing. A ton of our, our youth, a good majority of them are, are doing something structured in regards to sport. Um, however, sports specialization seems to be on the increase. So in 1997, 9% of children under the age of 7 participated in organized sporting activities compared to uh, 12% in 2008. So I'm sure that that is, is probably on the rise, you know, nine years later. And in this Feely article on table one, I thought it was pretty interesting. They cite a lot of articles in various sports, swimming, tennis, and then uh, articles, review articles with multiple sports where they show, it seems to be that the elite athletes in that particular sport actually specialized later, spent less time in that one sport in their early years, and then, but then were actually able to spend more hours on that particular sport as they got older. Uh, so again, you see this more kind of broad foundation from those that are elite. Now it was, you know, chicken or egg there, but, but it's just some interesting data there on table one. Um, and then we're going to, just define sports specialization by, uh, so they define sports specialization as considered intensive year-round training in a single sport to the exclusion of other sports. And uh, in, other, in the two other articles we read, we'll put a, a caveat there to say greater than eight months. So if you're training any one sport for more than eight months of the year, to the exclusion of other sports, that's defined as uh, sport specialization. And so obviously it's like how young is too young, but I'll start to throw it out to you guys and we can dissect this a little bit better. Mike, what do you think about this first article? I thought it was a good article. Can you guys hear me? Loud and clear. Yep. Okay, cool. I thought it was a good article. Um, he kind of starts off by asking the question, like, why do you specialize into sport? Why are we having early sports specialization? Why is that an issue? Um, which I thought was good. You know, basically what seems to be happening with early uh, sports specialization is just the idea that you can get uh, athletic scholarship to college. You could go on to pro sports and make a lot of money. But there seems to be a lot of pressure on kids these days, either by themselves, by parents or by coaches to specialize in sport early. And in fact, uh, Feely even goes on to say that specifically a coach is probably one of the biggest drivers for kids specializing these days. Um, but I think they do a good job of going through, like to actually um, silo out each individual sport and talk about various studies as it relates to that sport and kind of what they're seeing with injury occurrences. Um, so they talk about like baseball with pitch counts, um, either within season or per game pitch counts. Now that correlates to things like shoulder pain or elbow pain. Um, and they have several cited studies in here um, for a cohort of population. They talk about gymnastics and some issues with that, just because given um, with gymnastics, it tends to have specialization requirements earlier in adolescence for peak performance versus other sports. Um, they talk about hockey. So I think it does a good job of just talking about each individual sport and then some associated studies with them. And it's kind of just a, a plethora of great citations. Um, yeah. Derek, what jumped out at you in, in this Feely paper in particular? 
Well, I think it bears mentioning, you know, it's been discussed in various components that a lot of non-contact injuries are training injuries. And I think this article does a really good job of pointing the light on this and it being more related to the sport you play than anything else. And, and if we're going to kind of broad frame out for a second, it, it goes away from, or actually it can kind of make a case for there needing to be just some standard foundational athletic prowess before turning into a baseball player, an ice hockey athlete, a gymnast. Um, because if you start specializing in there too early, you're going to start predisposing yourself or developing some of the tendencies you see that lead to injuries in each one of those sports, um, whether it be wrist injuries in gymnastics or shoulder and elbow injuries in baseball players. And I think it makes a good case for developing a wide array of athletic skill set instead of becoming a baseball player. And, you know, logic alone says if you're going to be a baseball player, that's first predicated upon you being an athlete. But I think these days we have a lot more baseball players that aren't athletic than a lot more athletes that aren't baseball players. Yeah. And the, we'll probably get into some more of the, the multifactorial nature of this whole thing in the first Meyer article, but there was, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things that we can postulate as, as, as to why, you know, early sports specialization would then lead to a decrease. What it's looking like is a decrease in that actual sport as they get older. But like you said, you know, maybe there's some adaptive changes that are just a bit too early uh, for the athlete to be able to kind of deal with and recover from the workload. Um, you know, they mentioned in, in hockey, just the nature of the sport, you know, kind of th these kids that may not have the uh, athletic prowess or have kind of the developed, you know, just general motor skill acquisition to run and jump and land and cut and fall and all these and you know roll and all these things are, are trying to just jam their bodies into very specific positions like hockey is kind of an awkward uh you know you skate and you kind of like throw your hip into extra rotation to push off and then you you throw it up into a, a deep hip flexion and intermotation and they're kind of postulating that perhaps that leads to some adaptive changes in the hip joint with these young kids at an early age um, and again, you can say, well, you know, maybe is it, is it chicken or egg? Are they just kind of self-selected for that type of thing? But, um, and then, and then we'll talk about, you know, just the kind of psychosocial issue getting into the Meyer article specifically that, um, things just kind of stop being fun. I thought it was interesting. The pitch count, both you and Mike mentioned that. So pitch count has been something that they've been, the youth program seem to have been trying to employ uh, for a while now, even as, as early, I think the idea came out in 2001 and then as early as 2006, really making that kind of a mainstream thing. But in this Feely article, uh, it said that one study, cross-sectional study of 754 pitchers, nine to 18 years old, reported that 45% of the pitchers had no pitch count in place and more than 13% pitched more than the recommended eight months in a one-year period. So it seems like, and then they also say, despite the recommendations put in place by the sport governing bodies, the rate of reported UCL injuries in youth has been on the rise exponentially. Whether this is due to pitch counts being adequate, not enforced, not the cause to increase the diagnosis is hard to determine, but it doesn't seem like, and then below that, another study by Ahmed et al. reported that 31% of baseball coaches, 28% of players, and 25% of parents do not believe that pitch count is a risk factor for elbow injury. So we have, we're, we're trying to put these things into place, but 
then there's this issue of buy-in from the the not even the governing bodies, but the people who are so closer closest to the athlete, which are the parents and the coaches. You know, a big chunk, a third, a quarter of them are just not even buying into the idea of, of pitch count, which makes it really tough. You know, we're trying to enforce or, or trying to educate, and then people are kind of like uh, turning another, turning the other cheek. Well, if you look at what we have for pretty much all the research coming out of the long-term athletic development model, you know, it really advocates for in your adolescent, you know, training to train fundamentals and just creating a big base out of it. But one of the other big takeaways is it really advocates for healthcare providers to be in the corner of the youth athletes and really advocating for them to make parents aware. And, you know, we see this from the Ahmed study, 31% of baseball coaches do not believe the pitch counts a risk factor for elbow injury. I would argue that is a place where we can make a big difference as healthcare providers if we're aware of that. And some of it may just be unaware of the pitch count being there. Some of it may be volitional, not using it, but it it still comes down to it's our job to ultimately protect the athlete and have their long-term best interest in mind. And I think too often we get too concerned with being the best 12 year old, whatever type of athlete, not realizing that they don't pay 12 year olds that often. And if you really want to make a career out of athletics, you need to be focusing on being the best athlete later on down the road. But that's a hard thing to understand because if you have coaches right now, you know, well, you need to be seen by this scout or you need to be in 17 tournaments a year, you know, that's changes the focus. And I I think you, Mike, and myself would come at it through the lens of weightlifting because that's where we're the most comfortable. And I don't think any one of us would think going out and having a weightlifting competition every weekend would be a good idea because at some point you have to take the time to get better and really adapt. But for some reason, the same logic is applied to baseball, soccer, whatever. And it's not only just a competition, it's an entire tournament where you're going out and playing six, 10 games over the course of a weekend. And you're so far above what that athlete is adapted to that it's no wonder that we see some of the breakdown along the way. Well, how are you going to get better at your sport if you don't put in your 10,000 hours, Derek? <laughs> oh, I'm amazed you put my name on the end of that, not Mike's. Yeah, I was going to throw that to Mike, actually. Yeah. Uh, um, Mike, you want to go ahead and take this since I, I can probably feel your blood pressure come up four points? No, no it wasn't too bad. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting premise, like the thought process for a long time, I think, especially with specializing at anything is, you know, the 10,000 hour rule. We've all heard it. Um, Erickson was probably uh, the most popular with his research in the 90s with it. Looking at um, musicians and chess players and um, their ability to become elite level performers with uh, amount of what we call deliberate practice. So the thought was, if you deliberately practice, which let me give you a good definition for that. Uh, give me just a second. I think that's in the Meyer article, right? He defines deliberate practice. Yeah. So there's there's been a couple definitions. Um, Erickson originally defined it as the. Um, Engaging in activities created specifically to improve performance in a domain. And then he later revised it um, to state that it could be um, inclusive of uh, 
either practices that the team does or like um, coached by the, someone, or it could be solitary practice, like what you do on your own. So there could be different types of practice that could be included in that 10,000 hours. And then um, basically it was saying like, you know, if you deliberately practice your endeavor, whatever it is, whether musician, chess player or a sport that you would likely become the elite level. And I was thought for a long time, uh, Malcolm Gladwell actually wrote a book on this and totally blanking on the name. I want to say it was like the outlier that popularized it even more so than Erickson uh, for pop culture. But we did actually have a study come out that looked at this because we didn't have a lot of research on it for sports specifically. And so a study by McNamara came out in 2016, I want to say, called The Relationship Between Deliberate Practice and Performance in Sports. It was a meta-analysis. And basically he compiled a bunch of data on it and looked at, well, you know, are there, um, is there a correlation, a high correlation between deliberate practice and becoming an elite level performer at your sport? And looked at various sports. He also looked at, are there individual differences in uh, the person that allow them to become a better performer at their sport of choice? And overall, what he found was there's only about an 18% um, explanation for deliberate practice correlated to improved performance. So we have this unexplained 82% of what else is involved that makes an athlete at the elite level. And there's a lot of, expl- you know, like hypotheses of what that 82% exactly is, but 18% is pretty low. Like we can't say deliberate practice doesn't have an effect on someone becoming elite level. It definitely does. I just don't think it's nearly as uh, big of an influence as we originally thought. In fact, it's probably far, far much less. Well, and also going back to the, participants in the in the original studies where the 10,000 hour rule kind of came about like you mentioned chess players and musicians there's mm-hmm. there's not the physical toll coming from repeated cyclic bouts of of training those modalities as there would be with sport so to then just make the jump where there's really no evidence for especially for youth but to just just to say yeah. you know the 10,000 hour rule or to for any physical skill um, yeah, I think, I think people don't, don't realize that, 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 that it was completely different populations that they were looking at for that. Day. Well, I think yeah. it exposes our propensity for overly simplified explanations too, because, you know, the 10,000 hour rule sounds really clean. If it was like the 9,432 hour rule, I, I doubt it would have stuck quite as nicely. And if you look at the original Erickson study, the part that I love that's always missed is one of the other big indicators wasn't 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. It was how much sleep the person was getting. And, it, you know, how often do you hear people like, oh, the athlete needs to sleep more as a result of it? You know, there's nothing sexy about that. It's hard to sell. But if you really want to go ham on the Erickson study, then that athlete needs to be having nine hours of sleep a night, too. I think it was also like a. Uh what was it? The 10,000 or 10 years, I think was like the other side of that, that coin. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, you know, that would be really simple. It would be like, Oh, okay, we're going to start you at five. We're going to accumulate up to 10 years of practice. So by 15 or 10,000 hours, you're going to be at elite level, but we know it just doesn't work that way. And in fact, now we have enough evidence to say that it's unlikely that that's going to happen. I mean, we look at, which Meyer study was it um, where they cite it's 0.2 to 0.5% of our youth athletes actually go on and be elite level performers. I was even surprised it was that high. Yeah. I thought that was somewhat high. Cause that comes out to like, if we go off of the 20 million or so estimate, that's like 20,000 in the U S which is still to me pretty, pretty damn high. 
Well, I think that's a good point that shows how poor most of us are in thinking in terms of probability. Because if you really look at that, you know, if you have a 0.5% chance or 0.2% chance, you, you really are a unicorn at that point. And you really need to look at this at, instead of I'm better than everyone else is what's going to help me get better. And, and I think that's a central theme to a lot of this is accepting training as a process and then the long-term athletic development model training to train. You know, the, the competition doesn't mean that much in your teenage years. It's only, well, in most sports, there are some caveats to that gymnastics yeah. being the foremost, yeah. but it, it really isn't until you start getting a little older and developing into it that, it actually has some rewards. And by that time you've established such a base that you are able to express your athleticism and you're more durable. I mean, I, I think if you look at some sports, it actually is almost a trope of the person that was really good in high school. And then, or I mean, let's face it. He peaked in high school is an actual entry into the American vernacular. And it's saying this person got, too good too soon and offered nothing later in life. And, you know, we accept that as being a risk, but it's that whole, it's not going to happen to me risk. And, but if you really look at it from, if we're going to really try and look at training someone, it really is just an investment in the long-term development. And, you know, trying to have all this, I'm going to make you faster right now. I'm going to get you seen by 17 coaches. It, it, that's not about the athlete. That's about basically the person who's trying to do that, being a dealer for the athlete, and the athlete's the commodity, not actually an independent actor in the situation. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Mike, we can hear you flipping your papers all over the place. Can you? Yeah. Yeah. Quiet down back there. Good Lord. All right. Bye, bye. Yeah, that's all right. Derek, you mentioned gymnastics, and the Feely article goes through a list of sports. They talk about gymnastics, ice hockey, baseball, swimming. But you worked with gymnasts in Florida, and I want to talk to you about that because the article does say in, that is a, you know, a caveat and, and a, an exception with, with thing, gymnastics, also um, skating, figure skating, where they're starting, you know, body size has something to do with it. And it, it seems to be at the elite level, you're actually like, in that pre-pubescent uh, stage to get really, really good at the sport-specific skill. So if, if that is the case, then are we kind of stuck in a, you know, between a rock and a hard place if we know that it actually does improve? You, know, you actually will have a better chance of being in that elite level if you get good early, and then how do we combat that? Well, and this is going to be all contingent upon the sport played because it's easy to apply the greater than eight months and, you know, it's a heuristic with which to operate off of, but there's always going to be exceptions to it and gymnastics being the major case for that. But if you also look, gymnastics tend to, tends to be a little bit of a self-selecting sport anyway. Um, if you look at gymnasts as a whole, they tend to be a little bit higher on the bite and scale, a little bit shorter in stature and, you know, at some point when you start hitting puberty, you're going to see some athletes select themselves out of gymnastics as far as reaching the elite level. And it really becomes a true chicken or egg. Is it the sport that picks the athlete or the athlete that picks the sport? And if you're involved in this, you happen to have a huge propensity towards that athletic skill set. You're probably going to specialize in gymnastics earlier. Now that doesn't change your risk of injury. It's just, 
the peak in the sport is much earlier than in other areas. And so if, if you look at gymnastics as a whole, it's not like they have a much lower injury rate than anywhere else. It's just the nature of the injuries associated with their sport. And if you know what those injuries are, you know, your wrist, your spondy, and we know some ways of attempting to combat that. I would argue if you're a gymnast, those foundational principles against reducing that risk could be a integral part of programming. Would that, how would you reduce that? Just workload and education? I mean, if you well, know, like with the women, you know, with female gymnasts, it seems to be the, like you said, low back, wrists, Feely mentioned for uh, some of the male gymnasts, more so like shoulder and elbow type stuff. And so how are we reducing that risk? Well, so if we look at a lot of it in its simplest form, you have some dedicated strength training programs. And I know we're trying to avoid going down that rabbit hole in this podcast entirely, but a lot of the research would say your major way of really being able to reduce the overall risk of injuries is by having a dedicated strength training program focused on some of the deficits inclusive of each sport. And that's the simple answer to that. Yeah. And once I'm just kind of going down the list here of different sports, like swimming, that's just the hours and the workload um, amaze me. So one study was cited that elite swimmers typically swim between four and nine miles per day and often swim 11 months of the year, beginning at age 10 to 12. Well, I think swimming is an excellent case of survivorship bias to where you look at it and drown, right? Well, yeah, if you are the one that happened to survive all of the things that were thrown at you, then you really were the survival of the fittest in, in that, like in the most literal sense of that. And you're the one that made it through. But how many swimmers probably could have reached elite level, but were hampered by injuries along the way? And I think swimming as a whole tends to kind of fly in the face of a lot of training methodology where it's just more is more and more is better. And that's not what a lot of the research really says, especially in the youth athlete. And as we get into the Myers article, the second Myers article, we're going to mention burnout. And I think in swimming in particular, this is a real issue to where you have athletes that just can't handle that type of volume and they start getting psychologically burned out as well as any kind of physical or as much as any type of physical repercussions along the way. Yeah. Mike, any other thoughts on this Feely article? Um, I almost like, like looking through how they talked about each individual sport. And we mentioned pitch counts earlier and how we're trying to get that enforced and people educated about it. Does, would you guys say some of the responsibility falls on the governing bodies of these sports? Like, I don't know that swimming has like the allotted number of hours of swim practice or stroke count or anything like that in place that says you shouldn't be swimming four to nine miles per day. Yeah, I don't know. The, the issue is a lot of these governing bodies are private entities. And, you know, if you've got, if you've got a, a profit margin, and, and these, you know, some of these year-round sports, um, club sports, these types of things, there's there's bills to be paid and there's money to be made. It's tough. Yeah, I don't know. Derek, do you know if, if other than, you know, baseball, um, little leagues and these types of things trying to employ pitch counts, you know if the governing bodies are trying to Im Im impart some of these rules? Um, 
I think I've seen some thrown out, but it still goes back to how are you going to enforce it? Because yeah. Yeah. some coach somewhere is going to be the, well, we're going to do it different. And you, you almost, to go back to our weightlifting, you know, um, performance-enhancing drugs are banned in a lot of sports. How much does that stop them from being used? Right. So you can put the guideline in place, but it's, if it's not adhered to, congratulations, you're just blowing smoke. Well, I know we have contact hours uh, regulations for for sports as well. So that's kind of like what my thought process was 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 with it is enforcing contact hour regulations seems to be pretty well upheld. So how would we enforce in addition to that um, these different types of like volume parameters? Well, I think they they kind of talk about that at the end of the Feely article is kind of figuring out what those parameters would be. I think we, we yeah. just need more prospective data to you know kind of find that. That threshold. We need Tim Gabbett to come over and do acute on chronic workload ratios for for this stuff. For sure. For volume of each, yeah. Well, because in, in baseball, they said that, again, pitch counts were developed in 2001 when it became apparent that pitchers yeah. who threw more than 75 pitches in a game reported increased shoulder pain. So there's some data coming out with baseball. Those thing, The thing with baseball is that's easier, at least in the game situations and in practice, too. Like, pitch count is a little bit more objective than you know, I don't know, swimming, like the hours get kind of blurry. Um, the frequency is so high, you know, does the practice, how do you count it? Do you count, you know, just their when they're just kind of warming up and their practice strokes, it's just hard. It's harder to objectify maybe with some of these other sports, especially team sports. Um, well, one of the articles, I forget which one actually mentions that like us as clinicians should be considering not only just deliberate practice with teams or on your own or with the coach, but also considering like all organizations that the athlete participates in, whether it's seasonal based, if it's club based, whatever it is that we should be talking to parents and the athlete about everything they're doing throughout the year. You know, I think you made a good point there that was unintentional talking about all the organizational side of it. Like I think some of it is just emphasizing, Hey kid, you need to get out and just play. You don't need to be part of this organization or this club team, or like you don't need a team Jersey to go out and do some type of sport with your friends. And sometimes it should be, Hey, we're going to go try and play some sport we've never played before. Now, if you got the baseball players out playing ultimate frisbee every now and then, or, or just you know combine any two, but it's not jersey intensive. I mean, shirts and skins were perfect when we were growing up, and that's really, I, I think that has been lost out of it. Well, it sounds and like it's not hey kid, you, you need to do this. It's hey hey parent or hey coach, chill out. Well, yeah, and, and I, I think that's really where it is. Is but going back to it, as soon as you monetize a coach to say, this is going to be your career developing 13-year-old athletes, are they really a coach or are they more of a cattle herder looking for the prize steer? And I'm sure we're going to get some blowback for that comment, but I'll stick by it. You get blowback. Well, I ain't got yeah, you back. Yeah. We had nothing to do with it. It's all um, me, guys. Internet, feel free. Attack. Organize yeah. an attack. But it really is almost like a stockyard mentality, though. It's like, how many athletes can I possibly get into my stable? And then we're going to do whatever intervention, and then we're going to try and show off our prize cattle to all the scouts coming around and hope that they survive through to when it's maturation. It's it's trading in futures. 
Well, and then it's, it's selling training methodology, I think. Like, oh, you need five different specialized coaches for this one athlete, for this one sport. And there's a lot of money to be made here, you know. So I definitely get it. And it's also um, just lack of education, Derek. You mentioned some of maybe in baseball, some of the coaches not imploring, you know, implementing the pitch count, but maybe they just don't even know. I mean, I played baseball. I played baseball one season in sixth grade, and the coach, like, I love the guy. He was my best friend's father, and he knew about baseball, but he didn't know anything else about that. I mean, you know, so I don't think a lot of the coaches, maybe, and especially in these these little leagues, are just just have no clue. So you can say, ah, pitch count, pitch count, pitch count, but they just, the, they don't understand the significance of, of this. Just not, it's not just about pitch count. It's just overall longevity of the athlete. You know, there's a big picture. I think we think in short term, very often, that's a fault of ours. It's just human nature. You think what's immediately in front of you, not 10, 20 years down the road for the athlete you're dealing with, you know? Uh, Myers actually like referenced what Derek was talking about uh, in his first article with um, doing organized sports versus like just go have fun and play outside and don't worry about whether it's organized. And he cites a study. Um, this is on page 69 of the first Myers article. It says in a study of nearly 1200 young athletes in a variety of sports, the ratio of weekly hours in organized sports to weekly hours in unorganized free play, um, what they call the sports training ratio approached two to one. Young athletes who exceeded a sports training ratio of two to one are more likely to suffer a serious overuse injury. Um, so these data seem to indicate that unstructured free play may potentially have a protective effect from serious overuse injury. Yeah. So they just need to, and, and in the Myers article as well, I like this article. It's very similar to the Feely article, where um, the you know the aim was to talk about the current evidence outline the potential negative outcomes related to sports specialization and then maybe guide some alternative strategies, which one of which you mentioned is just, and Derek mentioned as well, is just unstructured free play, you know, fun enjoyment um, can help to decrease or mitigate the the risk of, of burnout. And in the Myers article as well on table one, they have degrees of, of specialization, which I thought was, was cool to break it down into some subsets where they, you know, there's kind of three things that you're looking at uh, or four low or three, excuse me. So specialization was kind of low specialization was categorized as zero or one of the following year round training greater than eight months of the year chooses a single main sport and quits all sports to focus on one sport. So if, uh, if a youth athlete is, is, doing zero or one of those things or falls into zero or one of those categories, their overall risk of injury was low. Their risk of serious overuse injury was low. And then I said their risk of acute injury was moderate. I don't know. You know, we have to look at the data. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's one of those things. It was probably significantly significant enough to fall into the moderate category, but not really of clinical difference. And then uh, moderately specialized, a moderately specialized athlete, was described as having two of those, two of the following year-round training greater than eight months, choosing a, a single main sport, and or quitting all sports to focus on that one sport. And that increased their risk of injury in general to the from low to moderate, increased their risk of serious overuse injury from low to moderate. And then again, kind of a head scratcher, their risk of acute injury is, is still generally low, but maybe that's when we start to have the conversation of 
this athlete is performing cyclical patterns. And so maybe we're starting to see more overuse type injuries instead of acute, you know, catastrophic because nothing is new for them other than taking, you know, maybe taking a baseball to the head or a helmet to the kneecap or, you know, something like that. Um, and then a highly specialized athlete was characterized as having three of those, all three. So your kid is highly specialized if they're training year round, greater than eight months in a single sport and they've quit all other sports and their risk of injury was high in general, the risk of serious overuse injury was high. And then again, a risk of acute injury was low and maybe the same type of deal. You know, they're becoming very, they're becoming better at their sport. So nothing is novel anymore, but now they're, they're dealing with these, these cyclical injuries or adaptive injuries. Potentially um, quick clarification. Quinn, I was quoting from the second part two Myers article, just for clarification. Got it. Well, and I think if we're going to get into the Myers, it's good that there's some quantification of injury risk too. So he actually says those athletes who met the definition of highly specialized athletes had a 2.25 greater odds of sustaining a serious overuse injury than an unspecialized young athlete, even when accounting for hours per week of exposure and age. So, you know, if you're talking doubling your risk, that, that should be something that sets off some flags. And if you go a little bit lower in the paper, what's funny about it is it says, well, not funny. What's obvious about it is patellofemoral pain was one of the most common diagnoses in the studies inclusive of calculating those odds. To beat the dead horse a little bit, what do we know about one of the best ways to really treat patellofemoral pain? It's from a dedicated strengthening program. And this is getting outside the norm of just we're going to go have this structure practice all the time into we're going to go train. And if you look at it and we really extrapolate out to like later in life, we don't know that many 25 year old baseball players. And, and if your identity as a teenager is primary baseball player and you don't have the opportunity to go play baseball anymore, then what do you go do? But if your primary identity is athlete, well, you can still be an athlete at 25 and, and you've accepted the process of training. So if we're really going to try and model this towards some long-term gains Yes, you can go be a baseball player, but you still need to have that athlete moniker first attached to you because baseball is eventually going to drop off. But if you understand training principles and you enjoy the training process, then you're more likely to go train. But if you see training is just the next step towards the next competition and all of a sudden competition disappears, well, what do you do? Right. And Meyer also – oh, go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say, or you, you're that athlete who gets an injury early on because you're overtraining or you're having an overuse injury and then you drop out and then you don't become physically active for the rest of your life. You know, you're just kind of couch potato, so to speak. I think that would be interesting to look at the correlation of that, um, with like obesity uh, and the rates that are occurring with that. Yeah. I think Meyer actually touches on that and <clears throat> have to look at, at the data specifically, but you know, the athlete having burnout and then that creates a resentment not only to that sport but to physical activity in general and then you know that kind of affecting them later on in life so yeah for sure and i also liked the in the my article specifically they talked about tennis because mike you asked in the feely article you know what are these parameters for each sport we got to find these things out but in in the myers the first one that he says that with women's the women's tennis association wta they developed an age eligibility rule 
And some pretty good data on this. On a, on a 10-year follow-up, it was seemed to be effective in increasing career lengths by about two years, which is, you know, sounds significant, and reducing premature sports dropout from 7 to 1% in young professional women's tennis players. And the component of this program was a phased-in approach, they call it, to the number of tournaments allowed beginning no earlier than the age of 14 with annual age-related increases until 18. So that is consistent with what we saw in uh, the Feely article where they show that those who get make it to the elite level seem to actually practice their main sport less early on and then increase the specificity as they get older. I mean, that sounds, yeah. sounds about right. Um, and it seems like the yeah. program that they employed there is following that same, that same guideline, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I actually had that highlighted. I think that would be an organization to continue to follow to see what other data we get out of that. But other organizations could mimic what the WTA is doing. Um, and I think I like the like ramped up approach. Like you build this wide base of foundation that's diversified, and then you kind of build out towards the tip of the pyramid as time goes on. You get more and more specific with your training. And also, it seems because to me the question is: Are we dealing with? Is it, the, is it the cyclical, like we're just talking like injury here, structural, let's take out the psychosocial element there for a second. But is it simply, is it like the cyclical motion of the sports or is it simply the workload? Like we know, we talk about tendinopathy and cyclical loading may be a mechanism, all these things, but that WTA program sounds like it's really just a workload management deal. And I think, and so if you're just managing workload and it sounds like I would imagine that they just like maybe made up a parameter and just kind of like, well, let's try this, you know, based on the data that we know of with tennis players and how long they train and, and where they, when they start and, you know, what percentages are, are still playing at, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. And let's just make a program and see, you know, if, how these numbers play out and they seem to play out pretty well, but it sounds like it's just workload management and you're, you're kind of killing, you know, several birds with one stone. You're getting your, if you're decreasing their overall work to a specific area, then you're dealing hopefully mitigating burnout because they're not just doing that thing all the time. Um, and then you're, you're also managing the cyclical loading and then tennis, like how do you objectify that? It's not going to be swing count or, or serve count. So, you know, maybe that's an easier way to go about it. Like baseball is a pitch count. Okay. But maybe in these other sports that are harder to objectify, we just look at overall training load and workload. And then like Derek said, supplement with, you know, some type of resistance training program where the goal is not an end game like you don't there's no cut off how strong you have to be and then you won't get injury injured but it's like the process there's something that seems to be protective of the process of resistance training and that so I, I, I still think just sports specialization um you're, you're still giving them an out with that kind of reasoning and i still think there needs to be way like way more diversity than there actually is so think about it like this, like how many 18 year olds when they go off to college know what they want to do? Not that many. Like we're perfectly okay. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I have no idea. But at 13 years old, they think they're going to be pro baseball athletes. So, you know, five years later, they have no idea what they want to do academically with their life. But at preteen years, we expect them to already figure out what sport they want to do for the rest of their life. Like it doesn't make any sense. And, so I guess the, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say the question becomes: At what point should these kids be specializing? Well, if you look in the evidence, it says you start really tapering in around fifteen, sixteen, 
if you're going to get into it. And Post has a couple articles looking at this, and they looked at the entire cohort of D1 athletes. And out of that school, freshman year, less than 20% of them were single-sport athletes. And by the time senior year came around, about half of them were. And, you know, it, that flies directly in the face of the dogma of you need to be a specialized athlete at the age of 13. Yeah. In fact, all of the evidence flies in the face of you need to be a specialized athlete at 13. I, I would argue if you don't have an idea of what you want to do with your life that doesn't involve being a professional athlete, you shouldn't be allowed to be specialized into a professional athlete at that point. Yeah. It's, you know, there, it's everybody wants to be Tom Brady, but everybody forgets that Robert Kraft cuts his paycheck. So maybe at some point you should start looking towards the dude who pays Tom Brady. Yeah, but the kids don't, they're not thinking about that. I mean, it really just, uh-huh. I agree with you that it, uh, the diversification seems to be the best way to go, but it's just got to happen at the, 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 you know, foundational structural level. There's got to be some adults in the process here that are governing this thing. Um, yeah, I think it's got to start at parent and clinician and coach level. Like we've got to be doing a better job of educating. This is what we're seeing with overuse injuries and in athletes and why we should be diversifying and, um, which which Myers article was it? Was it the second one that does a really good job of like laying out recommendations based on the available evidence of like what our youth athletes should be doing? And it kind of goes through each point. But really, the onus is on us to get this information out there and start trying to change the way we're doing things with youth athletes. Yeah, and then in Myers one, what makes he just kind of lists you know what makes sports specialization a risk versus diversified sports experience, and they you know they talk about just the the skill, you know, motor skill acquisition, just having a general repertoire of, of movement capacity seems to be a, a, a successful marker in a young athlete, but they, and they cite another study in high school athletes have found that those who, who did not take at least one sports season off during the year, fall, winter, spring, or summer were more likely to sustain an injury independent of whether the athlete was characterized as a single or multi-sport athlete. So again, you know, just, Seems like uh, you know workload there, um, overscheduling and competition. There's just some of these sports are year round now, and it's just it's so hard to find a break. Um, and then that increases pressure. So if you're always playing games, when do you ever have a chance to actually get better at your sport? I mean, when do you ever have a chance to dial back? All right, these are the things that I'm weak at in my sport. I'm going to practice this for a period of time. Or I'm going to bring Unfortunately, up, yeah. it seems to be when you get injured. It's like, oh, you got injured. Let's work on everything that you probably should have been working on. Yeah, I mean, how the hell do you actually get better as an athlete? It, okay, I want to be faster. I want to have better cardiovascular endurance. I want to be stronger. Uh, I want to jump higher. At what point are you able to train those qualities if your season is all year round? You're, I mean, you're gonna, your fitness levels are actually going to... You're going to get very, very efficient at like your tempo of play, but you're not going to be able to develop any qualities. And I think, I think, well, and I think if we look at sports across the board, like no one ever looks at athletes and they're like, man, he got so much better throughout the season. They're like, no, he's surviving the season. Right. And, and, you know, I think some of this gets into, to circle back to the free play thing. If you look at it, when you go into competition, at some point you have to concede that, you're going to sacrifice your health some for a win 
Whereas if you're in free play out with your friends, you're like, dude, I'm tired. I'm going to go home. Like, you know, if you have finite timelines in quarters, halves, whatever, versus we're going to go out and screw around for two hours, like you can be a lot more self-limiting there. So I, I think it gives some onus on the kid or the youth athlete to figure out when it's time to stop versus, you know, oh, we need to hit one more bucket of balls. Well, and going into the psychological burnout part of it in this first Myers article, they, they talk about that. Yeah. You know, talent development research on young athletes demonstrates that professionalized adult-style practices, like what you just described, are likely not optimal for fostering talent development. Specifically, research has indicated that adolescents need to enjoy the activities of their domain. Shocking. Like, they, they need to have fun. Kids need to have fun. And that intrinsic motivators are key to maintaining participation and goal achievement. So yelling at the kid and saying, do you want that scholarship? Hit this damn ball. You know, it's not, that's not going to motivate them. Maybe this, their motivation at that point becomes like making you happy, you know, right. uh, or just getting you to shut up and get off their ass. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, I, I think it works both ways out of that. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. You know, all this is obviously multifactorial, but it's funny because there are some common themes out of a lot of things we discuss. And before I go into it, the whole good old locus of control, that internal locus of control should be on the athlete the whole time. Like they should feel they're in control of the situation, not some coach who's going to tell them 7,000 things are going on and they need to change them. And if they don't hit 10,000 hours, then they're never going to make it to the next level. Like it, the criteria or the heuristics with which to base our decision-making off of are pretty cut and dry. You know, don't play more than eight months of one sport a year. Don't participate in more hours of activity or structured activity than you are years old. And then they also said no more than 16 hours of organized sport activity through the youth cycle out of it. Those are pretty simple things to keep track of. And it's still, it's the one more rep mentality. Okay, well, you know, we just have this one more tournament and this scout's going to be there. So we need to make sure we get to that one. Then all of a sudden you're playing year round. And then you're in that cycle of, well, when are you actually going to get better and develop as an athlete? It seems to set you up for some, some withdrawal too. They mentioned a lack of fun is a more frequent reason for withdrawal from a sport at earlier ages. So you might even not even make it. Uh, performance pressures seem to become more central to withdrawal as the athlete gets older. So if you're pressuring the ki the kids early on, they may not necessarily get better at handling pressure as they get older. It might actually weigh on them more because now they're, you know, if, if they were this good at early age, you know, they've only got to get better and better and better and better. And so maybe they actually start internalizing that pressure a little bit more. Um, and it's just kind of like, you know, confounding on them. It's just, uh, so you, yeah, you threw out, you threw out some good, some good stats there. So it, it seems to be no more than don't, you know, structure activity, no more hours than you are old and, or no, and no more than 16 regardless. Um, and then to summarize, it seems like specializing at the age of 12 or earlier is just, there's just no evidence that that's going to improve or increase your ability to become elite and may then increase your likelihood for some of these things that we talked about. 13 potentially maybe seems like the earliest. And again, it's sport. We're, we're talking uh, context here, you know, gymnastics, figure skating, these things might be a little different, but, but 
But then in that 14, 15, 16 age range, maybe that's when we're really starting to hone in a little bit because the kid is maybe more emotionally mature to handle something like that. Yeah, and then I would just, I think, we, I think we've mentioned this, but I would just add in like taking a season off, no matter if you're a multi sport athlete or not, all of them should take a season off throughout the year. Um, one sports season off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's easier said than done, but you know, the common theme is that we've come up with multiple times is it's on us to really advocate for that. And, you know, we can keep saying it over and over again, but this really comes into us being able to sell it to athletes and parents as this being a necessary thing. And like with most things, it's hard to sell the, the boring, more efficacious way against the, well, we have this one more tournament and you need to be seen and, you know, we really need you to help the team. And it's most times the boring, efficient way is not the sexy way. Like it's they're not the sellable way. Yeah. So, but then this is why knowing a lot of these statistics are, are so handy because it's the, that survivorship bias. Well, okay, you survived. You are the Tiger Woods who went and the whole way through and has been training since he was able to pick up a golf club. Well, for every one of those, there's ten thousand that now hate the game of golf and don't ever want to go out with their friends anymore. Yeah. And if you look at the evidence, so I'm going to butcher this dude's name, but Vayans looked at the 2004 Olympians and found that the mean age of sports initiation was eleven and a half years. So just starting sport at eleven and a half. I mean, most soccer camps have already been yeah. four years of travel ball by then. Yeah. And it says, in addition, the onset of training was negatively correlated with the time differential before the athlete achieved competition in any international competition. So if that's the case, you know, you're talking Olympians, you're talking the elite of the elite there. And they're not starting until four years after we're already having pick one sport conversations. The evidence yeah. does not hold up with you need to be starting this at seven. You need to be playing year round sport at 10. Like you're going to increase your likelihood of injury. And all of the evidence would say you are much less likely at going or at burning out earlier, not making to the elite level. And you really have to ask yourself as a parent or even as an athlete in your teens, do you want to become that trope of I peaked in high school? Or do you want to have some type of long-term development along the way? And all the evidence will say, if you start picking that sport early, you start playing year round early, you're much more likely of being that trope. So, you know, we'll get your varsity jacket that says I burned out for your patch. <laughs> yeah. It almost seems like just take a pragmatic approach to playing sport, but then we get kind of convoluted with all of this, all of these ideas that our kids going to grow up and be this greatest player of their sport. They're going to make a lot of money and they'll be set for life. But if we just would take a pragmatic approach to it, uh, it'd probably be a lot less injuries that we're having to see as clinicians. Yeah. Moving I mean, on. How many athletes? No, go, no, ahead. go ahead. No, you Derek. Go. No, I was going to say, how many athletes do you think we've missed that would have excelled in another sport? A lot. They had the chance to actually participate in it versus just picking one sport and sticking there the whole time. How many phenomenal lacrosse players would we have that instead are just mediocre cornerbacks in football or, you know, how many great yeah. weightlifters would we have that were mediocre gymnasts? 
And I think it think is interesting like to go down that road because I know one of the articles cited that 40% of elite-level athletes' parents were also elite-level in their sport. So it would be interesting to see if we had you try out as a youth athlete 10 different sports, whichever one you picked would probably be, I would imagine, the one you had the most fun in, which if we know that's part of the process of you engaging in a sport for long term, maybe that would be the sport you excel at. I mean, it's difficult to say or genetically predisposed to be better at one sport. Yeah, no, I definitely think, you know, we haven't really touched on the genetics side of it. And, you know, 18% of it is deliberate practice or is correlated with that. But how much of it's correlated on being a 6'8", 275-pound athlete? I mean, chances are you're going pro in something. It's just the sport you want to pick. Right. Well, and that yeah, I think genetics has a lot to do with it. Yeah, and that dovetails into some of the stats in the second Meyer article where one of uh, one study had nearly thirty percent of youth athletes were highly specialized from a sample of nearly twelve hundred young athletes. So Myers one defined highly specialized as more than eight months, one sport, no other sports. And in this twelve hundred youth athlete sample, thirty percent were in this category. And then they say in any high school athlete, point like you mentioned this earlier, Mike, I think 0.2 to 0.5% are going to go to make it to any professional level. So of those, of those 1,200 youth athletes, 360 of them were already highly specialized. And then according to that stat, of those highly specialized 360, only 7 to 18 of them are going to make it pro in anything. So what happens to the other 342 or 353 highly specialized athletes who didn't make it pro. So now they were highly specialized and maybe now we're, we're dealing with some of the psychological issues or physical issues that we've talked about before. Like where do they go from there? So it kind of goes back to what you said, Derek, you know, they specialize so early, but what if they would have been really good at something else and perhaps enjoyed it a little bit more? I think it's interesting too, like we keep qualifying as like success as of, of elite is that they made it to the elite level. We also have to ask like how long were they at the elite level? And so if you're taking into your elite career a ton of injuries that you've been dealing with for a long period of time, how long are you going to be able to operate at the elite level if you don't have these good foundational principles in place first? Well, that begs the question of at what point as coaches are we really there to develop speed, power, whatever? And how much of that emphasis should just be on making the athlete as durable as humanly possible. Right. And, and I think that is a major component that's missing a lot of time is it, if you want a long career, you need to be a durable athlete. So, Which, you know, being the fastest one around is awesome, but if you're hurt all the time, then you're not a very efficacious athlete which our bias would probably say we should be strength training you because we know that's going to be a protective mechanism for injuries down the road. So yeah, we need to get like a bias button to where every time we say strength training, we hit it and it makes some <laughs> noise and streamers shoot off behind one of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Myers yeah. two. I'm going to say Myers two, just to denote the second article, but they just have more, more data just of, of the same type of deal. Um, one of the, one of the NCAA division one schools, did a, did a study and found that their athletes at 70% of them did not specialize in their sport until at least the age of 12. Um, 88% had participated in more than one sport overall. Uh, the university athletes specialize at an older age compared to a student at the same university who were not NCAA athletes. And so there's confounding factors there, uh, f- for sure. But 
Um, that, I think, yeah, and that's Mike, where you say 40% had a parent who was an athlete. And so maybe, but you know, we don't know if that's good or bad. You know, uh, if it was, if it was a parent who played lots of sports, maybe they're, that's what they're pushing on their, on their kid to just try everything. If it was a parent who got hurt, like they were going to go pro, maybe they were really, really good or thought they were really, really good. And then they got hurt. Um, and maybe then that has a negative effect because now they're trying to push that kid into that sport, you know, to, to live right. through them. Who right. knows, you know? Um, but this is kind of where Myers, we talk about like which sports went to recommended stage of specialization. They have a table here, table two, um, where the type of sport matters. So gymnastics, diving, figure skating, very highly, highly skilled body size may have an, uh, a big factor here. And the recommended stage is, you know, if you want to, I guess, make it, try to make it to the elite levels early adolescence, but that doesn't mean that it's, that we're ignoring the risk. It just means like, as a Derek alluded to, you know, we're, we need to have education and, and maybe some other adjunct programs in place so that they can tolerate those stressors better. And then team sports like tennis and golf, middle adolescence. Uh, so maybe we're, I don't know where it categorizes where that actually is. Maybe that's in that 13, 14, 15 year old range, something like that. And then endurance sports, track distance events, which was made sense to me, like very cyclical loading. Rec the recommended stage of specialization was late adolescence. So perhaps when the body's a little bit more mature and, and can handle those cyclical stressors a little bit better. Um, what's jumping out at here on, on Myers two? I, I think uh, one point that <laughs> I always bring up is there's a stat in here that says 44% of school administrators in the United States report having cut significant time in physical education and recess to increase time for reading and math. And I think we need to step back for a second and, and also realize we're looking at this through, if we're all sports therapists, we just assume that all, or all of the youth play sports. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, there was a study earlier this year that looked at just overall physical activity that showed that your average American 16-year-old is only as active as your average American 60-year-old these days. And so we definitely have some more sedentary factors to it in general. But I think a lot of times looking at physical education, math, and reading as its own distinct entities you really lose sight of it because I guarantee you every weightlifter around can multiply by 90 better than any human. Like what is most of training in general? A lot of it's percentages. So you start learning that as a skill related to what you're doing and it gives you context. Like no one wants to sit there and, you know, learn math, learn fractions. But if that fraction then helps you calculate your training program, then you start tying math into training. And a lot of it is, being able to give context. And I think that's what's sorely missing from athletic specialization is the inability to really have context as an athlete. Like if we talk all the time about setting up the most ideal environment, but if we only give one environment for an athlete to work in, how are they ever going to have perspective of looking anywhere else? And some of it comes into our perspective as well. You know, it's really funny that we look at uh, humeral head retroversion in baseball players and we say, this is a good thing. This is an adaptive process that helps you as a pitcher. But then let's look at ice hockey where you see this massively high base rate of hip labral pathology, the asymptomatic athlete. We call that bad. They're both adaptations to sport. It's just we assign context to them. 
as healthcare providers. One of them is seen as inherently bad. One of them is seen as inherently good. They're both adaptations to the load being placed upon the athlete. I think the bad component comes in when they become symptomatic and now we have pain. But if we never had pain development, we would just call them adaptations, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, what's one of our big injuries we see in throwers, though? Shoulder yeah. pain. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah. we give a free pass to humeral head retroversion. Right. Yeah. And there's are, there are good studies out there on like MLB players and um, asymptomatic shoulders with pathologies like supraspinatus synanopathy, labral tears. Like, there's a lot of those studies out there. Like, it's it's blurring the line, and we've talked about this a ton of times in the past. It's blurring the line of what do we call a pathology that requires treatment versus just an adaptation that occurred and for some reason you became symptomatic, most likely became symptomatic from mismanagement of volume and training. You know, even if we go back to just like straight up Darwinian evolution, it's like, it's not the specialist that survives. It's the one who can best adapt to change. Yeah. The generalist. Yeah. What's the, what's the, there's, there is data on exercise uh, in particular, you know, looking at like recess as helping cognitive function I, I, i'm blanking on the yes. exact yeah they do exist yeah um, um i would have to i don't have them readily available but i've read them previously um well there's a study in this in the meyer 2 they cite a study it's the 40th reference it's titled 60 minutes of what a developing i love that first part 60 minutes of what a developing brain perspective for activating children with an integrative exercise approach there's that talk about integrative exercise approach, but it just means like do more. So, and then the uh, quote out of that says of potential relevance, a multi-sport approach provided with physical education curriculum that introduces a sampling of varied experiences tied to multiple sports in a coordinated fashion can induce more pronounced improvements in aerobic fitness and kinesthetic discrimination ability. So it's just more of the same, just general physical preparedness, just develop general qualities then that then we'll be able to hone in on, on the particular sport that the kid likes. Yeah. Where was it in one of these three articles? I read it and I remember putting a note just saying, wow, where there was a good percentage of coaches and, or I think maybe athletes who were actually saying that the UCL, a UCL surgery should be performed preventatively to increase performance. Oh, here it is. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was in the Feely article and it's on page, uh, forget it. Feely article in this study, 30% of baseball coaches, 37% of parents and 51% of high school athletes, 26% of collegiate athletes believe that UCL reconstruction should be performed prophylactically on athletes without elbow injury to improve performance. Half of these high school kids think that they need some Tommy John so they can pitch harder. That's unbelievable. Where is this? I mean, is it is it the fact that they're just watching their pros and then like it's, a you know, so they have the UCL injury. They're out for a year and then it's like Verlander's throwing harder than he did before the surgery. And so the announcers are like, this is incredible, you know. And then they start talking up the surgery like, well, you know, they say that the surgeons will, will tell you that it's, you actually become stronger than the kids. might like, holy shit, uh, mom, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and what if their parents are already like trying to push them into the sport? They're like, oh, man, maybe you're right. Uh, they start talking yeah. to the coaches, you know, well, you know, 
little Jimmy, Jimmy, little Jimmy did have Tommy John's at 15, and he's actually throwing harder than he did at age 13. <laughs> I mean, you can choose to believe in all sorts of bullshit, but that's why we need the evidence and the stats that we're talking about today in order to combat these horrible, horrible narratives. Like, well, you think about Tommy it, like, like Tommy John surgery also gets you at least eight, ten months on the reserve list where you're doing nothing but rehab training. So yeah. you got an off season, and if your rehab specialist is good, chances are you're getting a really good cuff program. So it, is it the surgery or the fact that you finally settled your ass down and did some basic training principles? Yeah, that you should have been doing all along. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of the basic training principles. The Myers 2, the end of Myers 2, because the whole point of that article was like alternative solutions. And so they propose a program or a system called integrative neuromuscular training. I know Mike really liked this term. Integrative integrative neuromuscular training. Like when I first read it, I was like, oh, okay, cool. You know, let's see what this is all about. So I'm just going to run down INT for their recommendations. Is it some type of program that includes general strength building exercises? Uh, specific to motor con- or uh, and specific to motor control deficit specific conditioning activities that are designed to enhance both health and skill related fitness in a socially supported environment. So get a little strength action in there, get a little get a little cardio, get them to breathe hard, and then uh, in a in a social situation where they're having fun and everybody's supporting each other. So they're terming this integrative neuromuscular training. It sounds to me like a just a nicely uh, described training program that would probably be inherent in most most uh, decent gyms or or programs. But um, any thoughts on the INT programming? And I'm not sure we got actually much specific specifics about it. When I read that, I when I read it, I was basically like any fitness program, regimented fitness program ever designed and implemented. Okay, good. When I read it, I realized that turning any training program into an acronym increases its efficiency by at least 20%. At least your selling point efficiency. Well, yeah, yeah. we were talking before the show. So if I, I'm in Orange County and uh, you know, lots of parents want their kids to be the next whoever around here. And so I'm thinking like, okay, I want to always want to do like a youth camp at the gym and, and these types of things. And like youth strength camp, ah, it's kind of boring. Youth athletic development, ah, we're getting a little bit better. But a youth integrative neuromuscular training program. And then we can have, you know, some of these like uh, graphics here where they're like physical training on one side, core strength and control fundamental movement skills, agility and coordination, recovery, postural control, muscular fitness. So some of these things, like we can measure muscular fitness, maybe, um, recovery. I'm sold already. Well, yeah. So, and then the other side, uh, cognitive. So I'm looking at a graph, a graphic here in the, in the article, cognitive distraction, which, so, you know, help them be able to, to perform a task, you know, with other things in the environment that they're having to manage social interaction, visual motor, neurocognitive stress management, muscle relaxation. I'm yeah, for sure. I'm sold. I mean, it does sound great, but again, like you really think about it, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything inherent about integrative neuromuscular uh, training other than, you know, the components that we would generally have in a program. They do give us a, a specific example though, on table three, where they have like primary movements weeks one to eight. It's very, it's very arbitrary, but Front squat, squat jump, 90% jump, plank and balloon drop and catch. I'm not sure what that is. 
Um, I guess you drop a balloon. Oh, maybe it's like a balloon filled with some air and it's like it's kind of floating everywhere. It. Yeah. And like, you like catch it. And then, so that's weeks one to eight. So you're training those as primary exercises. And also weeks one to two, I'm not sure if, why you stop at week two, but they've got single leg balance, overhead press and catch. Not sure what that is. Knee tap and catch. Not sure what that is. And a hip twister. No idea. Uh, secondary exercises week three through five, more of the same type of stuff. But if you just look at this overall deal, it looks like you got a, a somewhat of a combination between strength training, although I would say the front squat seems mm. to be the only strength. <laughs> yeah, the front squat may be the only strength training uh, thing there. But then some reactive drills and some like plyos that are probably fun, and then you can make a game out of it. Um, I, I think you brought up a good point, though, that we might not have necessarily meant to is like how to sell long-term youth athletic development. Like I've actually tried to run these programs at my clinic and gym. It is a really hard sell to tell parents like, Hey, during this off season, let's not send them to club X, Y, or Z. Let's try to get them to learn some more basic fundamental movement patterns and start doing some strength training. Like that is a pretty difficult sell in my experience. I don't know if you guys have had similar experiences with it or not, but I definitely think it's a good talking point. I think some of it, it really, you have to start small with it. And I know from my experience with it, it's, getting that one athlete in and then having some objective measures. Hey, we increased your vertical, um, you know, and they'll start seeing some subjective side. Like I, I would have parents occasionally be like, well, my athlete was able to dig this ball that there's no way they would have gotten two months ago. And then it, it really is kind of a word of mouth side of things. Yeah. And, and trying to build from there. But really like, I mean, if you think about most things in life, Trying to sell risk reduction is a lot harder sell than trying to sell performance. It's why you know nobody wants to get insurance because they assume whatever the bad thing is is going to happen to them. But right. they would rather spend the money on something for top end. But eventually think, that foundation crumbles and you get a trip to come see me anyway. I think if the onus is on us to implement this education, the, the best way we're going to be doing it is through such you know endeavors is we've got to get better at selling the educational side of things as clinicians, especially. And, and maybe, yeah, and maybe that's just why these, uh, these authors, I'm giving them some credit here, why they just chose to term integrative neuromuscular training as a way for us. Right. Cause like everybody knows that we suck at selling healthcare professionals, right. like, you know, re especially rehab professionals, like Derek said, like injury risk reduction program. Cool. I want to jump higher. Sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then Derek, I always get this wrong, but like, what is your, specific position other than physical therapist at Stanford? Um, God, I would have to look at my uh, ID badge. <laughs> Advanced <laughs> clinical lead for orthopedics and sports. But you're, and you're in, you're working with the yeah. youth population. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Pediatric sports. Okay. Yeah. Are you guys, or like where, do you have some goals about programs? You have programs that are implemented and you, you know, am I going to get you in trouble here? Uh, no. Like, what are you seeing that you would, that you like? in some of the programs that you're implementing or maybe that you have ideas about implementing and some things that you would, you know, want to shift into. Well, so there actually is currently a discussion at Stanford and the Lucille Packard pediatric side for, um, a youth athletic development program. And, um, we like our acronyms too, and they have an ID program, which is individualized development. And with that, the goal is to, and we're in the process of kind of streamlining, the entire program right now to where 
we start emphasizing some of the fundamental movements, some of the primary strength training methods, and then supplement it with some things that look relatively analogous to the INT program. It's, you know, we just go ID instead of INT. Um, and some of it is going to end up being sports specific because there, there is likely some sports where you need to work more on some cutting mechanics and jumping mechanics and some where it may be a little bit more trunk related or, um, but it's figuring out your base program out of it is where the real discussion is at Stanford. And the good part is it's a collaborative process. So we meet with athletic trainers. We have a PhD in biomechanics who we sit down with all the time. I actually share a clinic space with, which makes for really good discussion. And then other physical therapists and coordinating with physicians as well. And then trying to develop that program and get community buy-in to it. But, you know, it's an interesting paradox because if we get really good at injury risk reduction, we start taking business from ourselves. And that is the ultimate goal is to keep these athletes out on the field and have them not coming to see us. But we want to be so efficient with that that the athlete wants to come see us in order to reduce the risk. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you've got these, you're reducing risk or you're getting, you're getting them healthier, but then you can have these bridge programs that are somewhere in the middle. You know, there's nothing integrative neuromuscular training or whatever the hell you want to call it is not rehab. And it's also not, you're doing your sport. So it's, yeah, I mean, I guess it's just going to figure out how to, how to create the buy-in, you know, get the kids to have, show the parents that the kids are having fun, like show the parents that the kids like it somehow, get them in the door. You know, you said it starts with one kid, maybe, uh, you know, Mike and I are in more of the private setting. We've got members of the gym. We've got patients who have kids. You know, maybe we just set a date was like, all right, this weekend, we're going to do this little, little youth camp and. Um, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm going to use the F word. It's free or it's like really, really, really cheap. It's like cheap. So it's all yeah. to think about it. Like you want your kid to have fun. Just we're going to have fun, you know, and, and we're going to cap it at, at 10 kids or, you know, maybe that sounds like too many or too, you know, whatever. We're going to cap it at this and it's this, and we're going to do it from this time to this time. And there's really no barrier to entry. The only barrier to entry is is getting your kid in the car and coming to the gym, which you come to the gym, you know, two or three days a week anyway. So like, you know, and then, and then it, it can kind of jump off jump off from there. But, um, creating buy-in with the kids, you know, that's not the barrier. It's, it's the, it's the, it's the parents. And then maybe the parents then They're paying for it. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe it's the parents that can then talk to the coaches. Cause that's a, to me, that's a harder barrier. Like I'm much it further is. for me, I'm much further away from the coaches than I am the parents. Um, and I know, like in the university setting, Derek, maybe you were close to some, closer to some of the sports-specific coaches, but um, I'm assuming it's still not easy. Uh, in Florida, it was. Here, it's. I'm still in kind of the networking, getting to meet everybody in the area. But I've always kind of had like a two up, one down policy, or sorry, two down, one up policy, to where. Like, I want to know what the athletic trainers are doing. I want to know what the coaches are doing. And then I also want to know what the physician above me is doing. So I've always made it an active effort to network in with that group. And and I think some of it is occasionally there is that expectation that they'll just come see you. But if you reach out and try and meet them, chances are you're going to learn something about their training methodology as well. Yeah. Mike, any thoughts on your end? Any other thoughts? No, I think we've done a pretty good job of going through all of these articles. Um, 
can't really think of anything else other than just be practical as best as you can. Yeah. And you can sift through the hour and 21 minutes if you want specific recommendations, or you can just read those articles. Yeah. Uh, Derek, anything else on your end? We need to come up with an acronym that actually spells something, because I think the acronym is worth about 20% effectiveness, and then if you can actually get to spell a word, that's like an extra 5% bump. You, well, it's got to have a Y in there, right? It doesn't have to. Yeah. yeah. Or you can go adolescent, because that frees you up for an A. True. I mean, my redneck side really likes the uh, adolescent integrative neuromuscular training because then it's ain't. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, Mike, I love how fast you squashed that. All right, we'll think on that. <laughs> oh, I got an idea. We can make this podcast interactive. We can ask our six listeners to help us think of a name. Oh, yes. Mm, that would be amazing. Good. Yes. So yeah, I, I cannot wait to see the acronym. Yeah, so comment on uh, wherever you want with with some acronyms, for, and then we'll steal it and make a whole bunch of money off of it. Yeah, and maybe like you know, give you a shout out or something. All right, we'll um, put their shadow on the T-shirt. Yeah, well, there there's you always go. that like silhouetted outline. Yeah, if you're the one who wins, you get your silhouetted outline on the T-shirt. Yeah, who wouldn't want that? Um, okay. Great show, guys. Uh, I learned a ton just kind of talking that out with you. And again, check out our upcoming events, especially the Scientific Principles of Sports Rehab seminar, because um, Derek and Mike, you touch on loading and training across the lifespan, do you not? That's one whole lecture. Yeah. So these principles are integrated in there. Um, And then check out the directory clinicalathlete.com, check out the forum, and... We will see you next time on the Clinical Athlete Podcast. Take care, guys.